Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Marilyn Burke, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience Season 2. From time to time, we've had guests on this podcast who've talked about such interesting aspects of financial crime prevention technology that it's been worth our while to invite them back for a second visit. And it's our pleasure again to chat with Vincent White of Facepoint. And this time he's brought along his new colleague, John Lloyd of Idemia. Welcome, gentlemen. It's an absolute pleasure, as always, Vincent, to have you back. So, Vincent, for folks who may not have heard your first podcast, tell us a little bit about Facepoint. Hi, Sam. Hi, Marie. I'm Vincent. I'm working for a company called Facepoint that is putting forward a revolutionary new biometric screening tool. I'm joined by my colleague, John, who formerly worked for New York Police Department. I wanted to start just by talking a bit about both law enforcement and the private sector. Uh, We're very early doors in terms of defining the acceptable and legitimate use cases. And what we're all clamoring for is some direction and steer in terms of laws and regulations and guidelines that define those cases. John, you're not a techie at heart. So uh, my, my background is a former military officer, uh, came in by, by police department standards, came into the police department very late at age 33. So I was a 33-year-old police rookie, which was a, a lot of fun for a lot of people other than me. Because I had, uh, in, in the Army, I, did, I ended up doing a tactical satellite communications and, and kind of wide area network. So I ended up with this kind of a technical foundation. So I ended up getting into uh, our financial crimes unit in the NYPD because they were looking for people with a technical background. I kind of found my home with the document fraud unit where we uh, investigated uh, imposter cases. Let's just take a step back for those who didn't get a chance to listen to Facepoint's first podcast. And Vincent, can you just explain in really simple terms what's the technology your company has created? Uh, What we're doing is simply extending the application of facial recognition from identity verification, where it's fairly widespread and pervasive now. We're all used to uh, unlocking our smartphones through facial recognition to authorizing a payment. And so what we're doing is just pushing that envelope and saying, uh, why don't we apply that same process to watch the screening reap the same benefits in terms of speed, efficiency, superior uh, matching rates of performance, and thereby deal with some of the glaring problems in uh, watch this screening, uh, many of which are you know, rooted in uh, linguistic characteristics, but the most glaring of which is the Achilles heel of, of identity fraud. Impersonation. People just often think of it as someone, someone has stolen a copy of my passport and they're walking around holding it up, or they somehow managed to walk into a bank branch and go, yep, that, that's definitely me in the picture. Was it really as simple as that? In our world, if I am going to be, you know, Sam, so I can go and buy a new car or, or you know, open a line of credit or something like that, that's identity theft. You know, I have been excluded from the country previously because I'm a drug dealer and I wanted to come back and resume my empire. And so I come back as Sam Sheen. I am now assuming your identity, not just to get past the border, but now, you know, I, I have documentation. I have a New York State driver's license with your name on it. I'm ostensibly acting as you. You see, that's what we see as a, or what we saw, I guess, was a lot of that uh, was just, you know, somehow I've obtained your documentation. Some places is easier than others. Uh, and, you know, I go into a DMV and that's usually the first step. It's either I've obtained enough of your actual information to fool someone at DMV or for the... <laughs> you know, DMV employees uh, not being the highest paid civil service. Sometimes I give them a little something extra and they look the other way. 
and once once I have a state issued ID, then the ball just rolls, you know, from there, if I want to get a passport, if I want to get, you know, any other sort of documentation to prove that I'm you, then I'm in. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm you until there's there's some sort of conflict that, you know, you try to be you and, and that kind of runs to a head. Well, clearly there is an issue of using your driving license as an identity card, not only in the U.S. It has been proven to be quite risky in other jurisdictions as well. To my question then, how can biometrics help in prevention of the misuse of false identities? When we talk the power of biometrics, like a case, baseline case, is in New York State. New York State uh, Motor Vehicle Department decides, geez, we're going to implement facial recognition technology to make sure that people applying for new driver's license haven't got one already. In New York State, every time I get a traffic citation, I get points, which aren't a good thing. You know, you can't cash these in for a toaster. The more points you get, the higher your insurance goes until eventually New York State suspends your driving privileges. If I'm a commercial driver's license or I'm just somebody who likes to drive, when I points get too high, I could just back in the day go and mess around with my name and apply for a new driver's license. So New York State deduplicated its database. Uh, there was a there was an accident in upstate New York, and it, uh, you know a bus driver was found that, to have caused this accident by negligence. And they went and they found out that he had multiple previously issued driver's licenses that had been suspended. And he just kept getting a new one. So they deduplicated their database, and they're like, "We'll end this problem." Tens of thousands of duplications, everything from. I'm, you know, I was under age and I wanted a driver's license that said I was old enough to go into a bar. So I went to DMV and got a legit one to, to fraudsters, to people who, you know, I, I'm get, I'm in a messy divorce and I'm trying to hide assets from my wife. So I got a different identity and went and opened a bunch of accounts and put all my money in those accounts. A big mess, just deduplicating their database. So what's the power of that, you know, across systems? John, sorry for butting in. Yes, across systems, I totally get it. But isn't there an issue as well when it comes down to different jurisdictions and, of course, different states in the U.S.? In the United States, there's a thing called reciprocity. So which is part of the problem with these driver's licenses that if I have a New York State driving license and I decide I'm going to move to New Hampshire, I just turn in. I literally turn in my driver's license to them and they, they'll issue me a New Hampshire driver's license. In, in the United States, like each state is allowed to make a lot of rules concerning a lot of things, some of which are ownership of firearms. And so if I'm a felon from New York State and I've stolen Sam's identity and I moved to New Hampshire, I can go into a store, buy a gun, carry it legally, even though I'm probably excluded from that legally. But I have this document that says it is okay. And then being able to biometrically look across those systems huge. You know, that's not Sam. That's John Lloyd. He's a bad dude. He's not supposed to be in possession of firearms. You've probably heard our, here in the UK, our SAR system, it really needs a, an overhaul. And one of the things enforcement's really been wanting is something that can read across the many, many SARs they get, regardless of quality, to be able to say amongst the SARs and any additional materials we get, is there any commonality in terms of the people? As you've described, it might have obtained a multiple of identities. I mean, how would biometrics help in that respect? I mean, first and foremost, let me, let me say that, speaking for me alone, I am a fan of technology. I am a fan of doing things smarter in a smarter way. I, I think that you can do things more efficiently 
and safer at the same time. And I think that this, this technology is getting mature enough that we can do that. So with, with the FinCEN leaks that have happened, it's like, seems kind of obvious that the, the data was there, you know, and somebody did an okay job of collating that data. What I w wonder about is if you had an AI machine learning system that was looking not just within the organization, but across organizations for those patterns, fact pattern analysis, so that if I'm a fraudster and I'm can, you know, committing a fraud and a Ponzi scheme at Chase Bank, maybe I'm doing a Ponzi scheme at Citibank, you know, like now, you know, where do, where do biometrics come in? What if I'm a smart fraudster and I'm only doing my Ponzi scheme at Chase Bank and at Citibank, I'm doing an advanced loan scam, but I'm, I haven't been able to counterfeit my head. I have the same one. There I am on all those account opening documents. So all of a sudden, even when the fact pattern doesn't fit, the biometric pattern fits. And I think that in general, what you can find is that, you know, when you really focus on the actors in this, in this kind of play space, nobody does it one time. Why would you? You know, if, I, if I'm greedy enough to be a criminal and want to go steal money, I also probably am going to want to repeat that behavior. You know, if I'm an imposter, I'm being Sam just to, because I'm subject to expulsion from the country. Okay, that's us. That's as far as I got. But if I am a fraudster and I'm, and I'm always running the next scheme, and I think that that's what these systems allow us to do is really kind of longitudinally investigate the, the activities of this person. And, and I think that's the, just the amazing power of these systems now is that my photo from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, my general head geometry, there's maybe more forehead than there used to be, but <laughs> my, my facial geometry remains the same so that the system can see across, you know, that age progression. I've mentioned before on this podcast, Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction, where they talk about on the data analytics side. It's all well and good to be using these tools, but it has resulted in unintended consequences of uh, creating bias around sentencing in certain parts of the United States, bias around being issued a loan, depending on the neighborhood you've lived in. Um, so, you know, bias is a really big deal when it comes to technology, but you folks are looking at another side of it, which is demographic bias. Vincent, yeah. do you want to talk a bit about that? These are well, well-known problems and touched on a couple there. For example, credit score and credit ratings have long been based on algorithms. If you have some kind of automated decision-making, and this is why it's dealt with very carefully in GDPR and data protection regulations, you have to protect against the risks of exclusion, of unfairness. So first of all, it's important to understand what we're talking about in terms of use cases. Look, the technology, it doesn't matter whether it's facial recognition or cars or planes or computers, that's neutral. The devil's in the detail and it's all about the use cases. There was an industry analyst who very astutely observed that there's a lack of understanding of the technology and the public is conflating facial recognition with all kinds of other stuff, uh, body recognition, tracking, facial analysis, gender, age, ethnicity recognition, biometric validation. And that's just not understanding the difference between the use case and the technology. We're all desperate to have some clarity about what are the narrow, defined, legitimate use cases. Yes, there are some differentials. We know that they exist in other, other areas of biometrics. So we know that, for example, accuracy of fingerprints can change depending on the age of the subject. That doesn't mean that fingerprints are flawed as a method of identification, far more effective than the labels that we use that uh, John has just uh, outlined all those examples of how it's so easy to, to, to falsify with impunity. 
So there's a lot of focus on the differentials without an understanding that actually the more accurate algorithms exhibit very low differentials. And when we're talking about the application in a KYC process, we're dealing with driving licenses, passports, primary identity documents that have high standards. They have to meet certain criteria. You can't obscure your face. You can't smile. We joke about you can't, no one looks like their passport picture, but they do have a very high standard. And that means that the consequential effects in terms of these differentials is extremely small. Yes, the differentials are very large when you've got a poorly lit CCTV image um, spotting a crime. And those situations should be dealt with correspondingly, i.e., with the uh, involvement of a human for that adjudication process. It's not at all uh, automated. John, you want to comment on what Vincent just said? Yes, that's the the key to this is all these systems, you know, are amazing tools that I think can make these comparisons and do do fact analysis and package them in a way that is usable for a human decision maker. Are there biometric systems out there that can unlock a door? Yes. Fantastic. I as a human being comfortable with that level of automation, but like when it comes to credit rating or anything like that like you you see the the huge downstream implications of when when machines are making the call so i think that that's you know all these systems are great to put information in the hands of actual human being decision makers i think that's the important thing but then again business today at least in certain jurisdictions is not done by sending a passport or copy or a driver's license or physical id cards it's all about electronic identification that, of course, you know, back in the days could have been based upon a factual ID card, but still can be old as, as dirt. <laughs> so can I get your view upon combining electronic identification with biometrics? This kind of goes back to Sam's question before about the spoofing or deep fakes and presenting yourself as someone physically. We've all learned from the COVID crisis that banks need to adapt very quickly to deal with this non-face-to-face account opening. And there are you know, solutions in, in the technology. So for example, with facial recognition, we have uh, methods of measuring liveness. So someone can't send someone else's picture. You know, it's a bit like the extreme example of someone trying to pass through airport security with a very um, elaborate PVC uh, mask to try and pass themselves off as someone else. We do have the technology to uh, detect for those subtle differences and plug those gaps as they emerge, as these new variations of uh, fraud, new typologies appear. Well, okay, John, Vincent, you got me all fired up, so I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Why should I, as a financial institution, do more than what the regulator requires? Then I risk losing potential business, don't I? So isn't the issue really here to get the lawmakers and regulators on board and see these changes that are necessary in order to prevent crime, financial or non-financial? I, I take your point and I, I, I just feel that, you know, that is the long game. That is the direction of travel. And we need to have a more comprehensive, consistent and uniform identification system. And I, you know, I applaud the initiative. I mean, you mentioned EIDAS. I, I applaud the initiatives like Open Identity Exchange. And eventually we are going to need this, you know, universal identity protocol because we're going to need to have some measure of trust, not just for humans, but for Internet of Things as well. And so I, I, I think we are going in that direction where obviously there's a way to go in, in terms of what you're calling for from a regulatory side. But I can only say that we should be doing that. <laughs> Sam, you want to comment? <laughs> so in the Benelux region, 
as we talked about with Charlie Roberts from ID Now, we can do EKYC on people, but they require there be live video verification of the individual with whom they're dealing with and who's providing all that KYC. One of the key factors for them is being able to identify when individuals are under duress or perhaps being manipulated or coached in some way. And they have specialist teams who sit and watch and try and assess whether a person appears to be behaving voluntarily on the video or whether or not there's concerns, perhaps they're trafficked or there's some other situation there, say a, a KYC mule, if you like, John. So how can biometrics help in that respect? Because for those regions, they're going the live verification route. Does the technologies assure? My thing is that these, these systems, is that putting that information in the hands of human decision makers where the machine goes, you know, boy, the micro tremors on this person's voice is off the scale. There's, you know, what, whatever metric they're using to measure this thing, and I, I am by no means an expert, putting that in the hands of, of a, a human decision maker because, you know, as, as someone who recently had to do a podcast, I get very nervous. I'm sure if you put, you know, that machine on me, it would note all the micro tremors in, in, in my voice. You know, so again, in the hands of, of human decision makers where they can, again, look at the totality of the situation and, and make a decision as to whether or not, uh, you know, that 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 person is, is is under duress. And I think that that's an important consideration. And, you know, when it comes to the exploitation of, of human beings and this thing isn't about compliance. I mean, it's it's I'm, that's terrific. You're you know, you're complying with the law. More power to you. It's about disrupting criminal networks. People are cashing in on human misery. Would you like to be part of that process or would you like to be part of the thing that derails that process? Obviously, there needs to be oversight so that it isn't abused, but I think that it is, it is a, you know, it's another tool that we have. I agree with you, John. Vincent, what's your take on that? We talked about live state detection, and there are obviously lots of use cases that are very compelling, uh, where, for example, we can see if someone is answering under duress, and we do that by you know, measuring all of these micro-expressions and their perspiration rate and the pupil dilation and the galvanic skin response. It's all very Blade Runner in terms of measuring the actual you know, psychology of what's going on behind those superficial features. In terms of that use case, again, I see that those certain cases where we're doing a KYC where we're trying to interrogate a suspect, that's a, a valid and noble cause. What I'm more concerned about is the sort of emergence of empathic media and cases where that technology and that biometric data is being used to sell us more stuff. You know, we're measuring keyboard response times or we're measuring behavior in that way. Yes, in some cases it might be benign, but I can certainly see some, some abuses and, and less valid applications. And that just goes back to what we were saying in, in terms of, you know, we really need to understand what are the worthy and legitimate uh, ways of applying this technology. Well, we might have to invite you back for a third time to see where this technology might take us. Vincent White and John Lloyd, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you both. We would love to come back. Brilliant. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Excellent. And that's it for another episode from season two of our podcast, Captivated Audience. It's been an absolute pleasure, Marie. I look forward to chatting with you soon. And for those of you listening, if you have any ideas of topics you'd like us to cover, or if you'd even like to come on and share some of your financial crime experience and knowledge, feel free to reach out to us directly on our LinkedIn page, Captivated Audience, or you can go directly onto our website at captivatedaudience.eu. Until the next time, 
Please wear a mask, take care of one another, and stay safe.